Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. This week, we have a real treat as we're hosting Peter Abier, co-founder of Lux Capital, a 21-year-old venture firm that is a pioneer of deep tech investing. Currently, the firm has nearly $4 billion in assets under management and has led investments in companies such as Desktop Metal, Latch, Matterport, as well as Aorus Health, which was acquired by J&J in a $6 billion transaction. I've known Peter for nearly eight years and have always found him and the team to be so incredibly thoughtful and insightful about venture capital. And it was so great to go through the long history of the firm and discuss the early days, including challenges and opportunities, main ways they've evolved over the years, and for good measure, we also talked about why they embrace facts. I had so much fun recording this episode, so without further ado, let's get into the episode to hear my discussion with Peter. Peter, it's so great to have you on, and I'm excited to uh, walk through the Lux story with you. Great to be here. Thanks, Samir. As everyone knows, Lux is now one of the best firms as it relates to deep science. But what a lot of people don't know, it's a 21-year overnight success story. And I want to go back to the origins back in 2000 when you and Josh decided to launch a firm, probably at the worst time ever, coming off the uh, <laughs> dot-com bubble and subsequent burst. Tell us a little bit about what went into it and why did you decide to launch a firm in 2000 that was so different from all of the other firms that we had seen? At the time that we decided to launch, you know, when the idea was germinating, there was still a lot of hope in the market. There was, you know, turkeys were flying, there was a lot of enthusiasm. We officially incorporated in March of 2000 which as I joke was was the indicator that you should sell every single stock you owned at that point in time. But we were young, we were naive, we were very ambitious. But at the time that we actually decided to leave our jobs, I was at Lehman Brothers, Josh was at Solomon and uh, third co-founder Robert Paul kind of joined as an entrepreneur. We believed that there was this opportunity to build a new investment firm focused on really deeper areas of science and technology. And as we described it at that point in time, it was really physical and life sciences. Um, the market has changed and evolved. And I think the helpful description of deep tech in, it really encompasses what we do. But our thesis at that point in time, whether very early or perhaps wrong in the year 2000, was that the next several decades of innovation and invention would really be based upon deep science and technology. At the time, though, I mean, if, if I think back, and I, I started my career in venture in September of 99, and then I saw really the bubble popped around April of 2000. As you were going out with this thesis, which is fundamentally different than what people were used to seeing in, in venture capital and the type of companies you're investing in, what was that reception from a fundraising standpoint? I can imagine talking to people and them, them looking at their public equity portfolios <laughs> dropping by 500 points a day. Tell us about the early days of that fundraise and how did that go? Reception was not particularly warm. In fact, it, it felt pretty cold and, and brutal those early days. You certainly start to question yourself and, and uh, your idea. But I think we were at a time, as you mentioned, basically, as soon as we started going out there and sharing what we wanted to do, we would look at someone, more often than not, a public fund manager who would stare at us, and we were these fresh-faced 23-year-olds, and they would look up at their screen or look up at their Bloomberg and see a sea of red and the NASDAQ just being absolutely decimated. And so it certainly was a risk-off environment. And so we were kind of sent out into the world during that time period to try and ultimately forge a path. 
And so I think that was actually in retrospect, and we certainly did not appreciate it at that point in time, but the difficulty in finding willing investors early on, the fact that it was an arduous journey actually, I think, really helped create a better uh, long-term positioned firm than had it been really easy. It certainly made us you know, more humble, certainly made us feel like we needed to be more resourceful scrappier, more creative than others. And at that point in time, you know, that was from the very beginning, tenacity, grit, persistence, just the need to be relentless was embedded into the DNA of the firm. You know, we were going out there and telling the story early on and finding very few people who would believe alongside of us. Uh, we met someone who who really transformed not just our personal lives, but our professional lives. And that is Bill Conway, one of the founders of the Carlisle Group. And so Bill was for the longest time at Carlisle, not just a, a co-founder, but the chief investment officer of the firm. So much of what we've learned um, has truly been privileged to really absorb from Bill and from his guidance. Some of the principles that we now hold dear, investment strategies, uh, the way that we think about the organization, the people, we feel incredibly blessed that Bill was able to share that and took an interest in what we were doing, because otherwise um, we certainly would not be here were it not for him. Is, is I think back to fund one, which I believe was under $10 million, and then fund two was raised many years later, I would suspect that you you and Josh both made enormous sacrifices personally. I know you were at Lehman, living probably a, a well-paid job. Tell us about the points of conviction that you had about a thesis that was, at, at the time, fairly nascent that provided the resilience to kind of get through not only the early fundraising, but those first few years where you don't know if things are completely working yet because it's too early. And number two, you're really not drawing that much in terms of economics. What were those things that you saw at the time that said, this is going to work, we're willing to be resilient together, and ultimately got you to the point of the next inflection, which was really fun too. You know, I'd love to say that we were getting all of these indications that there was something there, but to be entirely honest, the first couple of years were brutal. And it was just that you had to have absolute willingness to sacrifice every everything to just plow forward because otherwise we were getting zero signals that what we were, you know, would set out to do made any sense and there was any validation. So that it was, you know, the the darkest days were certainly early on where it wasn't in the same way that today there's in a, in an emerging uh, manager market. There are people that are willing to put emerging managers into business. There's an ecosystem of people like yourself. They're sharing stories with other managers. None of that was out there. None of that was public domain. You know, it felt quite lonely. And truly, there were there were you can count on really one hand and really a few fingers the people that were willing to actually invest the time and energy into helping us get off the ground. It was almost really probably internal resolve and commitment to just follow through that got us through those early days where it felt like every day, every morning, we were waking up to chew glass, telling our story to investors that had no interest in hearing this. And not just, you know, the the, the kind of decimation of the NASDAQ and public securities, but you know, venture had had really retreated. And so you could not really at that point in time with a straight face make the argument that there was a need for an incremental firm. Um, even if we're describing ourselves in a way that there was a unique and distinct focus on the content of what we're doing, 
at that point in time, it was, you know, just a tremendous pressure in the venture industry in general. And so many people that when we set out, uh, were other kind of boats that were out in the same journey, basically are at the sunk to the bottom of the ocean or retreated back to more comfortable shores. It's an easy thing to do. And I, I believe, especially with the bull market that we've been in now, that's now bordering on 13 years, it does feel like everything's up and to the right and firms that sort of have these sequential growth patterns. But oftentimes, when you actually look inside baseball and you talk to the fund managers, there's a lot of twists and turns along the way, a lot of inflection points that could have really gone either way. One way, you know, in terms of turning the firm to not what it is, and the other way is actually the firm being successful because of those inflection points. As you looked at the first decade of Lux, which was at a time where AUM was still small. In fact, you you hit two downturns, 2000, 2001, and then again, 08, 09. <laughs> yeah. What were some of those most transformative inflection points that you had in those first 10 years? They were very distinct inflection points. And, um, you know, when I'm kind of providing my advice or my feedback to a lot of emerging managers, I've always been very clear that when you get that opportunity, which can be quite rare and infrequent, you need to be able to translate that into the next uh, level, you know, climbing the hill and ultimately reaching the next plateau. And so the first, as I mentioned, was was meeting Bill Conway. Otherwise, that was not a relationship that we had before starting Lux. It was something that became a close advisor and a real supporter in a way that put an imprint on the firm that otherwise we would not have been seen as being credible. The next was really identifying within the area of physical and life sciences, um, an area of material science called nanotechnology. And Josh, uh, in particular, became a well-known face, a very articulate advocate for the potential of nanotechnology. And that was the first time that actually we, we began to rise from the fray and have some visibility. And so for many years, that was the calling card. People knew us for our work in material science and nanotechnology. After that, and it was a number of years later, we raised our second fund, and it was then a uh, more traditional structure. The first one was a pledge fund, all Bill Conway's money. Uh, the second, we had more traditional uh, institutional investors, although still mostly family offices, people like Bill, other large private equity and hedge fund firm founders. But in that second fund, we were fortunate enough to create and incubate a company called Curion, which most people looked at and, sh and shrugged and could not understand at all, but it was in nuclear waste remediation. And so that was not exactly SaaS or DevOps or <laughs> it was you know far from uh, a well-trodden path, but we created this company also based upon really Josh's foresight and uh, observations in, in finding ways to take the world off coal from base load generation power source. And it was selected as the company, the technology to clean up Fukushima. And so it started as a couple million dollar seed from Lux, ultimately started generating hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. And in short order after was acquired by Veolia for just shy of $400 million and our, call it $2 million, turned into about 115 or $120 million. And that was the first moment in our lifetime, in our in the, the you know, the lifetime of the firm that what we were seen as doing, which is kind of these off the beaten uh, path, deep science and technology, almost oddball investments could be lucrative. 
And so that was an aha moment, more so from limited partners, but I think also from many of my peers that were, were other kind of GPs and managers who said, huh, that's pretty interesting. And that was the first time that what otherwise seemed like more of an intellectual pursuit was validated from an investment perspective. And so I always think of this in the just the in gambling, you know, terminology is the parlay. You parlay one success then into the next. Once that happened, and of course that was a fund returner, and the issue sometimes, you know, at least historically, with things that are deep tech and hard tech, and I think the world has changed pretty dramatically where people understand that. At the time, it was not a typical SaaS company, it was not typical consumer investing, which most LPs knew. How did you articulate such a very difficult and technical type of thesis? And was it really just around somebody seeing a company within your portfolio and Curion and seeing the revenues and seeing the exit and saying, okay, there's something to this. And these are not just all science projects that you're investing in, which may never have, have commercialization. Or was there more of a continued learning process that you were giving your LPs that eventually they just got it outside of just Curion? The early LPs, both Bill and Fund One and uh, a number of the families and you know very prominent investors in Fund Two, it was, it was belief. It was faith. There were no intermediaries that would have signed off and checked the box and says, this is really a great fit for your foundation or your endowment. And so you needed conviction in the individuals, us, but in the thesis that we were espousing at that point in time. And so it's interesting because that experience also brought us limited partners that have loyalty to what we're doing, believe in us, have great pride in, in how the business and how the firm has developed over these years. And we recognized that because we had no discernible track record at that point in time, because we hadn't spun off from some large platform we needed people that had conviction and patience. Written and patience was incredibly important for us because of the duration of you know our investments in these companies when we're founding them out, you know, spinning them out of university labs or starting as just early stage technology, trying to get any momentum, any velocity of which none existed. Those people um, believed, and ultimately they were rewarded for their patience. But that was a huge competitive advantage for us. Because had they just been completely transactional in a way that you see in today's market where it's, you know, which we'll probably get to, you know, resembling far more of public markets, public securities investing, they would have hopped off the, the bus a long time ago. But I think they, they believed in what we we're doing, thought that there were a lot of positive societal and byproducts and that what we we're doing had meaning. And I think without them appreciating that, without them feeling that emotionally, uh, we would have been without very many limited partners early on. One thing that struck me as you were going through that is just the unbelievable conviction you have in, in terms of a thesis. And you've said that one of your favorite quotes is imitation is suicide. And from the perspective of how you launched the firm, you didn't really imitate anybody. In fact, you were doing something that was largely uncharted and you had to take people through a learning journey to get them comfortable. And once they do become comfortable investing, one of the key aspects, of course, is looking at the team. And I want to go back in the early days of you and Josh starting the firm and thinking about why the two of you are complementary from a leadership of the firm perspective. And I'd be curious on how that's evolved over time 
as you've grown the firm, as you've evolved together, to ensure that the two of you continue to be complementary in the best possible ways for the organization? It's a relationship that's evolved over time. And so when we were getting started, I think neither of us had much of a professional career where we had established core competencies and capabilities. And this is what we do. And this is where, I, you know, my superpower exists. I, I spent a year at Lehman Brothers. I was just, you know, young kid coming out of college, Josh, in the same way. Josh had deep technical experience, was a Westinghouse winner doing focused AIDS immunopathology research at the age of 13 when I was probably at a bowling alley for a birthday party. That relationship really evolved over time. And it was not without friction, but we really found comfort zones. And a lot of that became a foundation of trust where I had great trust and appreciation for his skill set, things that he loved doing that he excelled at. And he started to understand where I was uniquely advantaged. And, and that, but that came over years. And so I don't envy people that all of a sudden, you know, join together at a hip at, and start something without any fundamental foundation of friendship, trust, respect. But now we've been partnered for longer than even our, our partners, our spouses and families. We pretty much know what the other one is thinking at all times. It's, you know, close to telepathy. You know, if there's an issue that comes up, I think one will know what the other is going to take the lead position and, and help handle. And it becomes this balance where I, I think, again, it comes back to just respect and appreciation and understanding where I trust Josh in so many uh, different elements and really with my life, obviously, because this has been my life for 21 years. But I know where his gaps are and vice versa, and we will seek to fill them. And if it's not one of us, then certainly on the team level. You talk a little bit about evolution of the relationship, which completely makes sense in the context of the two of you being in the early 20s when you started the firm. And really, I think each of you probably developed a zone of genius over time. But are there things in particular that you would recommend to fund managers in nurturing those relationships? Because I think a lot of times we do see partners come together. Maybe they've worked together to some capacity. Maybe there's a layer of trust. But once you launch a firm together, to go through the twists and turns, to go through what is not immediate gratification and really signing up to a contract that effectively is longer than most American marriages, I would suspect that there are things that you have to do along the way to ensure that complementary, that trust, that resilience stays. Tell us a little bit about how you and Josh sort of operate to ensure that happens consistently. It helps that really our experience together was kind of the turmoil was the start, right? The struggles in the initial years, and it's not as if those ever fade entirely, it just kind of changes in the same way that people that are sent out to the front lines have that lifetime bond many decades later. When you go th through those shared struggles and that inner turmoil and you know just you're faced with overwhelming pressure and you get through that. It has a lasting effect and certainly creates a bond that's really difficult to break. In easier environments, in more fertile environments like today, where it's still challenging, but money is easier uh, to find, everything looks great and up and to the right, I think when challenges happen and struggles happen years in, those relationships can be tested in a way where they haven't been previously and there could be a lot more discomfort. And so, as I said, I think so much of the, the shared common experience, much in the way that people think of kind of a pledging process 
it was kind of counterintuitively advantageous for us over the long haul. And, and, and certainly emerging from that process, we have a very healthy appreciation for our skill sets and really our limitations and our weaknesses. And this is something that whenever I'm talking to someone who's young and getting going, whether they're you know, aspiring to, to build a firm or whether they're aspiring to build a company, I think understanding your weaknesses, understanding your limitations, having humility is essential. And so I know where I you know, lack certain skills or where I'm not advantaged. And ergo, there I'm able to find people that I think complement me, that have those skill sets that might have gaps that I can fill. But if you're approaching it as trying to, you know, the, the, the first order, first principles, we're trying to build a great investment firm where there's a culture of communication and collaboration, then you want to find people that do not look just like yourself, where you're not entirely redundant experience set or skills. And so if you look at how we built the firm over a number of years, it's really by appreciating things that we enjoy doing, things that we can do where we're skilled, and then those things that we have no experience, no uh, aptitude, where we need to find a partner. And so for many years, it was just doing whatever necessary to basically survive. Then we started to have a little bit of success that parlayed into more success. And we recognized, well, we've only been focusing on the investment side and our infrastructure is basically taped together or you know, chewing gum uh, that's holding it all together. And so we brought on a COO and a CFO and now a general counsel. And so there's this more of an organizational structure that can support a uh, you know, investment firm. And we focused on initially people that believed passionately in what we were doing and what the you know Lux was was seeking to build. And so some of the earliest hires were actually unpaid interns who were PhD students who really wanted to to join and and build a firm. And we also brought on very early someone who's been our longtime partner, almost co-founder, Adam Kalish, who manages and and has led our investor relations for for almost two decades. But we've been blessed in finding people whose missions align with the firm's it's not a transactional relationship. These are people who we want to invest as much in, as possible in building their career with Lux and vice versa. And I think you know the results speak for themselves. It's not myself or Josh so much as it is the mission that we're on and making sure that we find like-minded partners to help build, build the organization. And you've built an organization that is is quite large, both from an AUM standpoint, as well as the number of people that you've added on as partners and principals and operations, you know, staff over the last decade or so. And and the tough thing that often happens when you grow as a firm is one, maintaining a set, set of culture, especially as you onboard new people. The second is to create enough oxygen in the room so that the two of you as co-founders are not the only one that have the ability to make decisions and you can delegate appropriately. I'd love to double click on a couple of things related to the team. So as you look at the people that you are bringing on, are there certain characteristics that are non-negotiable that people must have and that you and Josh have to identify that they have before you bring them on? And number two, from a cultural standpoint, how do you ensure that despite the fact that you and Josh have been together for 21 years as you're adding new partners, that they truly have a voice in the room? To me, What's non-negotiable is integrity, people that we can trust and vice versa. 
Humility is also, as I mentioned, hugely important. There's so many people in this business that have arrogance, and whether it's deserved or undeserved, to me, that's unacceptable. It's just human characteristics. These are just not people that I want to, to work with. I've found that so many people just take themselves seriously and I think incorrectly attribute success to what is often luck. And so you just need to have an appreciation that from us, we, we talk about it internally as process versus outcome, is if you're working incredibly hard, if you're being diligent, deliberate, creative, and things don't go your way, that's not a reflection of you. That that happens. And so we talk about you know sometimes bad process, great outcome, great process, bad outcome. It's happened to us. Everything we did right, we look at the you know, we look back at what we projected to, you know, that how this can fail. And ultimately, if it turns out that that low probability event happened and the company failed, it's not a reflection in an individual. But we want people that are that are willing to, that understand that, appreciate that, and don't believe that when their companies or, you know, companies that they're investing in are riding high, that it's all because of them. And then vice versa, it's sometimes it's someone else's problem. Those are generally personal characteristics, personality flaws that we seek to avoid when we're bringing people in. Integrity, humility, um, and really for us, passion, passion in the spaces that we invest in. Where we're now a quote unquote scale firm, I'd say we've always assumed that someone will be able to pay anyone on the team more to port over to some much larger organization. And so if you don't actually have true interest and passion in what Lux does, where we invest, which is distinct from most mainstream venture capital firms, it's probably not the best fit for you. And so, you know, over the last five years, it, it's not lost on me when a lot of investors and in, um, from better known firms, historically better known firms that do a lot of different investments and sectors that we don't generally participate in kind of come to us, you know, my first question is basically, where have you been? If you were naturally interested in the areas of which we're investing in, we probably would have seen you as a co-investor, as someone who is at these obscure technical conferences that we're still walking the halls of or, and so that to me is the, you know, passion is not always entirely a predictor for success, but we think it's an important one. I'd say because of the way that we started the firm, which we, we just talked about, we've never presumed that we know everything. And so a lot of people that, that have a successful template that worked for a point in time believe that that's the only way to do something. And because we had no real template, we had no blueprint, no playbook to operate starting this in 2000, we've always been trying to, to be lifelong learners. We're out there talking to people, whether it's within the venture industry, hedge funds, private equity. We're always trying to take different mental models to see how we can improve Lux and, and improve our firm. As you think about how that ultimately manifests itself in things like decision making and, and giving everyone a voice, we recognize that you're not going to be a successful firm that scales if, in our view, if it's like a single decision maker. There are examples of that but not for our culture, not for our system. And we think of it very much as a system. If we're bringing someone on who we think is excellent, who is additive, who brings new experiences, a new viewpoint, a different technical domain, we want to gain the best of their wisdom and their insights. And so we've, we've always 
constantly tinkered with investment process to make sure that people feel encouraged to share what they have to say, such that people do not feel like they have to hew to one more dominant position that others have articulated. And so we're constantly turning dials, absolutely always rethinking process to try and improve. And that I have found to be somewhat surprisingly rare. Uh, There are people that are also adapting and evolving, but a lot of other investors, and especially those that have had prior success, believe whatever they experienced, whether it was in the late 90s or 10 years ago, this is the way that you do it. And I think we're just intellectually honest to recognize that that might have been the horse for that course, but perhaps not the one as the game is changing and evolving. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it reminds me of the map is not the territory risk that comes with long-term businesses and trying to apply a certain methodology that might have worked in the past with a different set of problem parameters to a new problem and a new era, only to find out that it doesn't work and there's a lot of failure. And we see that all the time. We also see firms struggle with as they get longer in the tooth, that even though you bring in new partners who have different points of view, that you have some dominant voices on the top whose opinions may have calcified if they haven't evolved them. And instead of promoting diversity, you actually just create more of an echo chamber effect by the uh, dominant voices imbuing their opinions so strongly. At the same time, you also want to have a culture, I think, of ownership and accountability. And I'm curious that within Lux, how do you promote that culture of diversity of thought, but at the same time have a culture of ownership, but not to the extent of everyone feeling like it's an attribution-based organization? We like to we like to use the, the word we rather than me, us rather than I, and in decision making. And this is something that it's a constant conversation. As I've watched other firms that we know and respect move and change in today's environment, which where speed is of the essence, we still have every decision come through the entire partnership, and that's something that again we're open to reconsidering. That has been our view in that we want to make the best decisions we can as a group. We found that that has advantaged us when people are making relative judgments. They have you know, the, the healthcare team and the technology team, and the healthcare team really only looks at healthcare investments or biotech investments, and therefore, it's really uh, making relative judgment. This is the best of what I've seen, so let's allocate capital. For us, it's very much fundamental principle of best ball wins. Everything, whether it's a $100,000 seed investment or a $100 million investment goes through the entire partnership. We obviously have different thresholds uh, depending upon investment size. And that's really how we've we've kind of modulated investment decision-making, where if it's a gigantic bet-the-firm investment, we want to have everyone on board. If it's something small where there is that passionate table pounder, the entire firm will see it. And if some people don't believe, if there is someone that's passionate, we will still go forward with that, but we will dial back the size of capital that's allocated to that idea. We've actually had some creative structures in terms of how do we deal with these situations where one person absolutely believes and the rest of the group, including myself, just don't see it, just can't even imagine or fathom a scenario where that's successful. So the way that we've done that and remain true is is just by dialing back that investment to the absolute bare minimum such that we can kind of then do the uh, the look back and and post mortem if it's successful we ultimately record every everything everyone's judgment at that point in time 
And in the desire to improve our decision making and the heuristics that we're using, we can say, well, hmm, that's interesting. Would not have seen that as successful. I guess I had overemphasized the market when in this case, it was the capabilities of the team. But it's a constant focus on improving our decision making, being willing to suspend disbelief, which there's just so many ways that you can kill an idea or an opportunity because it's just obvious this is not going to work. And so it's it's really making sure that there's almost a, you know, always the optimist and the pessimist. Josh would, would generally say he is the pessimist. And I think that is absolutely true. More often than not, he takes the counter, but it's a healthy diversity of opinions, viewpoints that ultimately, even if he starts with more of the skeptic jaded view, he loves being persuaded of the other way. And we're at least mentally facile enough to change our, our minds. That certainly speaks to intellectual curiosity and wanting to get to the right answer by embracing different perspectives, which I know you do as a firm very consistently, knowing many of your partners. The one other thread that I did want to pull on is, and this has become more accepted today, but in the past, Venture firms usually had one location. All the partners would be in one place, all the principals, all the operations staff. And since the pandemic, I think people have realized the efficiency and effectiveness of remote workers and having different locations. You actually moved out to the Bay Area in 2012. And what I'm curious about is, at least back then, it wasn't as clear how you can work in bi-coastal sort of firms, there's a few firms that have done that successfully, but it does change the dynamic. You're not seeing each other every day. There wasn't really Zoom, so it was phone calls and maybe other video conferences. What type of connective tissue do you need to have prior to having these large remote locations where you have different parts of the staff and different partners in different locations to ensure that you're going to be successful in in that type of format? It's a great question because we had um, a significant advantage when I first moved out here because we had seen so many other firms with bi-coastal presence that had failed. We, you know, where there was just conflict between partners, fiefdoms that were established. And so we went in eyes entirely wide open as to how do we make sure that we have that common, consistent fabric culturally across both offices? What are the things that we can do from a leadership perspective? What are the things that we can do from a workflow perspective such that people feel like it's one lux, unum lux, as we often use internally? And so what did we do? Well, one, Fortunately, we had, you know, Josh and I had been kind of arm in arm and, uh, or, you know, alternatively at times early on at each other's throats, but we had that experience. We were like, you know, siblings. And so being able to come out here and kind of help establish the office, it's like I was the culture carrier, it was one and the same. And so that was like the ultimate seed that was planted. We wanted to make sure that it, that, that things were not geographically confined. Bilal uh, and Shaheen were the first partners to join out on the West Coast. Bilal was going back and forth to New York and Boston on boards. There, it's, it's maybe somewhat inefficient because we're still traveling. It wasn't in the Zoom world, but we didn't want to make it, oh, it's, an, it's a West Coast investment opportunity. Then you know the, the Menlo Park office takes it. So we removed any silos. There's a great book that's now probably five years old called Silo Effect, but it talks about how silos in decision-making, there's obviously an inherent desire to have specialization. There's a lot of value, but there's so many unintended consequences that are negative that come with silos. 
we removed any geographical silos. Even if I was in Menlo Park, I was on boards in New York and Boston. We'd be flying back and going back and forth and vice versa for some of the folks in New York. We removed any silos with respect to industry verticals. So we noticed that there were increasingly, you know, years ago, it's kind of energy and materials, healthcare, technology. And rather than having subgroups meet where they're deciding what gets in the portfolio, for us, we just cleared that all away. And I think it was hugely valuable for us as we thought about what became really one of our, our biggest strengths is focusing on you know, multidisciplinary technologies and intersectional technologies. So technologies that cut across multiple industry verticals when other people use a word, which I've used in the past too, but is is the concept of swim lanes. And so that is my swim lane. And so what that looks like, even from a kind of an investment strategy perspective, is people will do the same things over and over again based upon their career, but they miss out on all this innovation and invention that's occurring at the edges. What that looks like practically, though, is uh, thank God for Zoom, which even before the pandemic or video conferencing, we tried out like three different systems. But all day Monday, we're basically on video conference with both offices. We had another day on Thursday to spend together as a team. Anyone that joins our organization, the first thing that I think becomes immediately apparent is the overwhelming amount of email traffic. And so it's basically our digital water cooler. It's an internal listserv, and it is completely overwhelming. You come out of meetings for three hours, and there are like literally 200 emails. Even though that's that's a struggle, I think it creates a culture where we feel, even if we're geographically you know, separated by the entire continent, we feel close. We're making jokes. We're making observations. We do this on Slack as well. But people feel connected. And so we've always encouraged folks on either office to go and visit the other one such that it's not you know, at all jarring to see someone from New York who's just hanging outside in Menlo Park here. It feels pretty natural. And so the, all those things, we had the benefit of, of not having any hard, fast views, learning from people that had failed and being open-minded to learn and to incorporate best practices. I think it's also something that you've probably evolved over time in, in terms of creating that true unification as a firm. It is something that is, I think, a little bit easier today with Zoom, with Slack, and and then accompanying it with some ways of operating your culture. I think you guys have done a really successful job in doing that. So thanks for sharing sharing your, your background on that. I, I want to move into the investment side. So I remember you and I getting together, I believe it was in 2013, and it was around the time Fund 3 was being raised, which was close to, I think, if not exactly $250 million. And one of the things I remember thinking, and this is prior to sort of this deep science, deep tech revolution that we've seen over the last five years, is when you invest in a company at the earliest stages, there likely is a paucity of follow-on funders relative to your traditional SaaS company or consumer company. How has that affected your model in terms of thinking about your portfolio? And what have you seen in terms of other capital sources that now have helped you in terms of getting your companies funded past the point of your original or initial check? The experience in you know securing follow-on capital for our companies has in many ways, made our firm. And I'll explain why. We were, you know, the biggest issue that we face, people now today think of pro rata as this asset. Oh, I have pro rata. Well, I can assure you that was not the case when we were getting started. 
as soon as we were trying to make a large initial investment, whether we're starting a company or whether we're uh, you know leading a Series A, we'd then say great high fives and say, oh my God, the pro rata for the next round, you know this is this burden that we cannot bear. Why was that critical? Well, it forced us to get out of our comfort zone and hustle around to find investors, strong, sophisticated investors who could provide growth capital or companies. And nearly the entirety of the growth capital in certainly our first and second funds were not provided by the the larger uh, well-known firms in Sandhill Road. They were people that we were identifying, sharing our thesis, providing our conviction that were LPs of ours and family offices, that were sophisticated hedge funds that were dipping into an area that they knew on the public side, but not necessarily the private side. It really, and I use the word forced because it did, it forced us to find alternatives to the traditional conveyor belt of venture capital financing. And so that has been extraordinarily valuable now as the world has changed, private and public markets increasingly converging because those are our people in many respects. You know, we would make an investment and assume somewhat uh, defensively or somewhat out of insecurity that no one in, uh, you know, in Sand Hill at that point in time in the early 2000s would want to do this deal. And so we're just going to have to find someone else that believes in that. You know, Curion as an example, so many of my friends, I brought the company to, this is, you know, for the Series A, we had led the seed. And people would say, I love you, but what in the hell are you thinking? Like, why? it's either solar or biofuels. You clearly cannot invest in nuclear waste remediation. And so the other investors were, aside from, uh, you know, a friend of mine at, at Fire Lake Capital, which was a, you know, was a, a venture firm, the f- late co-founder or founder of Pequod Capital and the, the founder of Greenlight Capital were the ones that came in and led that round and one of our limited partners. And so otherwise, had we had been left up to only believing that a, a venture or growth equity firm would be the follow-on investor, these companies would have died. As you look at the world of today, and to me, this is the biggest thing happening in venture where this once provincial market, you know, there's basically the equivalent of a, you know, a shoe cobbler is now entered the, the global financial markets and it's finally becoming connected. But it was once this little cozy insular environment, some could describe it as almost having cartel-like characteristics. Now the global capital markets have moved in. And that ranges from, you know, crossover hedge funds or hedge funds that are now, you know, investing aggressively early, leading Series A's. I'm sure everyone knows the names of these firms, but also private equity firms that, you know, have have become multi-strategy built off of the backs of LBO deals, but now increasingly in growth and moving even further upstream to venture or Non-traditional players like sovereign wealth funds. Like I, I've been thinking this market would have cooled years ago, but my joke was, uh, you know, just wait until the Norwegian oil fund is leading a Series B or Series A, and and it feels like we're pretty close to that moment. But I do think like the, the entire dynamic has changed such that we used to send our our companies off very deeply technical endeavors. We'd seed them, we'd lead a Series A. And we'd send them off on a journey. We'd pack them up provisions. We'd give them water. They're in them some, you know, horse-drawn carriage, and they start moving. And then, a year from from then, two years from then, whatever technical milestones were achieved, they'd come back to the capital markets. Today, 
we lead a seed or a series A, as soon as the transaction is announced, immediately funds are coming, giving either you know price discovery or term sheets to these companies. And so it really feels like if, you know, and I'm a student of financial and economic history, it feels like the development of the public markets, you know, 200 some odd years ago under a buttonwood tree at Wall and Broad, where yes, it's not high frequency traders yet, but you have people, there's active markets, there's price discovery, there's active bid ask spreads, whether it's secondary transactions or people willing to buy primary. And so that has completely changed the game. Yeah, and you're definitely speaking to the the maturation of different asset categories. And certainly within venture, we're seeing more funders or more type of funders and family offices are a great example who have materially increased their allocation to the asset category of the last 10 years. And within alts in, in particular, which now are $9 trillion, expected to go to $13 trillion by 2025. And as we think about maturing markets, one thing I know you've spent a lot of time on is the world of SPACs, and I believe you were initially skeptical, and then ultimately became much more comfortable as you studied it more. And I believe that you even likened them to junk bonds, but you know, in a very positive connotation. Tell us a little bit about how you think about SPACs, and where do they fit into the financial world as a tool for both investors and companies? It is a... Uh timely question. Even going back, uh, let's see, probably about 18 months ago was the first time that professionally I was exposed to this back. I was aware of it. Uh, I had friends that had raised, you know, 15 years ago SPAC and ultimately did not find a target and let it go. But my perception of this is, is it's that it's probably a better fit for some brokerage firm out of a Long Island office park uh, versus White Shoe Wall Street or Silicon Valley. I remember in early 2000, uh, right before the pandemic, there was a sponsor that came looking at one of our companies and presented us with this opportunity and describing it. And that I, I learned I was open-minded, but I walked out of that meeting and basically took the deck and immediately put it into the shredder. And so it was the summer uh, where I got a call from uh, arguably one of our most sophisticated entrepreneurs, but just incredible entrepreneur, Rick Fulop, founder of Desktop Metal. And so he said, you know, I've been getting approached by all these SPACs. I said, you know, ignore, delete. Uh, he's like, no, this is actually, there's something real here. I've been on all these calls with people in capital markets and attorneys, and I think it's really interesting. And so for him to say that to me, I said, huh, maybe I should kind of reconsider my priors and, so, and revisit them. So I had a bunch of conversations in the same way, same people that he connected me with. And I all of a sudden had this aha moment. This is probably July or August of 2020, where I recognized I, like many other people, sneered and looked down upon this product, largely based upon the people that still, but certainly historically, had been participating in this market. But realistically, if you actually look at it, it is just a financial instrument. No more, no less. There should be no moral judgment applied. For many companies, this is extraordinarily valuable scale capital and a take public transaction, and it makes a great deal of sense. And for other companies, it's unnecessary. The, the attributes of the product itself don't make sense. Once you have a nuanced view, I find anyone that says, this is the greatest thing, this is amazing, like that to me seems like that individual is probably a blowhard saying that. And someone who says this is garbage, no company should do that, is someone that 
I believe is narrow-minded and not actually looking at the product and understanding the nuances and subtleties. And so I, I actually have put myself out there as someone who is willing to defend the structure, not the people that are always associated with it, because it is a financial instrument. And so just in the same way, and, and I have written about this, that junk bonds you know, were originally seen as something that was lesser than none of the large investment banks or brokerages wanted to be associated with them. And it allowed, you know, kind of an unconventional individual at that point in time and Michael Milken, just in terms of the firm that he was representing to, to ascend this leadership position. It is a useful tool. Junk bonds then became reclassified and rebranded as high yield, and they helped to create this entire industry of private equity. And so what would have happened were it not for high yield and junk bond financing? You wouldn't have had the build out of the telecom industry. You wouldn't have had the build out of, of cable and satellites. All of those were financed by junk bonds. You had all these extraordinary entrepreneurs who were innovators, who with Milken's junk bond financing and highly confident letters were able to take over staid industries that had become calcified and basically lacking a pulse. And so my view is, I'm not trying to romanticize the SPAC, but I do believe there are a lot of companies, and many of ours, I think we are right now, I don't know if I should, someone uh, sh should be sending me a trophy or not, I believe we are the number one firm of, of portfolio company SPAC transactions. So I think it's right now 10 or 11 that have been announced and, and the vast majority have been completed. But these have helped extraordinarily compelling technologies led by visionary, ambitious entrepreneurs access very significant, in the case of many of these companies, $500 million plus of uh, financing to build the, you know, what, what they've been, been set out to do. And so I think that's really useful. I think as you look at things in the electric vehicle world where uh, you know I have skepticism, the projections that you see, the fundamental attributes of the SPAC, by the way, just so that everyone understands, why is this valuable? Well, yes, it is to raise large amounts of capital from public market shareholders and to grow and compound as a public company. But something that is, that's now a little bit of a concern because of comments from the SEC is the ability to provide forward financial guidance. So why is that meaningful? Well, if you think about today, a traditional S1 you know, to public IPO, the only thing that you're able to share with these public market investors, prospective investors, be they sophisticated hedge funds and mutual fund managers or retail investors, is what's in the rearview mirror. And certainly based upon the multiples that people are applying to these companies and really the way that any discounted cash flow works, 99 plus percent of the value of any business is going to be in the future. And yet you're unable to share what could be very reasonable judgments and expectations and financial projections. You can share them with the underwriting analysts, but you're unable to share those with the public market. And so people make decisions on, should I invest in this IPO without having any idea as to what the business can become? So who does that work for the traditional IPO? Definitively traditional software company where people look at the last 12 months or last 24 months of revenue, they'll apply some reasonable judgment based if it grew, if it grew 75% and 73% the, the last year, maybe it will grow 71%. And you're just basically using a dial to say, what multiple do you want to pay for that? 
biotech, for the most part, financial projections are relatively meaningless. You can talk about your pipeline, but for the vast preponderance of businesses in between, maybe 90% of all the businesses you know, in play, it matters what you're building. It matters the ability to communicate to sophisticated investors as you do in private financings. Here are my projections, whether that's one quarter out, one year, or five years, here's what I'm building. Most of our businesses, are they, they look like phase change businesses. It's not just incremental. And so whether it's the introduction of a new product, whether it is some major order that they've received that has not ultimately manifested as revenue, if you're unable to share in confidence or you know it, it share explicitly with a prospective investor about what's about to happen, you're at a disadvantage. So the SPAC in that sense as a financial instrument is hugely valuable for many of our portfolio companies, and it's no surprise they've used it. I feel like we could have an entire podcast session to SPACs and actually the broader capital markets, and maybe we do a part two where we talk about things that might be transient in nature, given the current economic markets and things that we believe have real permanence to them, including things like financial tools like SPACs. But I do think that you're correct in that the SPAC market has been probably one of the most polarizing type of markets and financial tools out there. And there's skeptics, extreme skeptics, and there's people on the other side of the, the fence that are probably overly optimistic and misuse the tool. And I think the, 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 the truth does lie in the middle, and if done correctly, it can be a, a fantastic source of capital and funding and a way for these companies to really grow in the way that they should be able to grow. And so I really appreciate that. I want to actually end with our heat check section, which I will ask you three questions rapid fire. And a couple of these actually came from your partners. Oh, good. <laughs> the first question I have is, What's the most transformative piece of career advice you've ever received? For me, it's all about integrity and reputation. When I think about, and it's really two pieces of advice that I've received, we've received from Bill Conway, they go to reputation as being something that will, is permanent and will ultimately power or uh, take your career off track. And so the first is really the New York Times test. You know, Don't do anything that you wouldn't want to to see on the front page of the New York Times. And so when you think about behavior that I often see in the market where it's like narrow self-interest, transactional, it's something that is at the moment, it might make sense, but it, kind of in the, the long winding path of business to me seems counterproductive. So that's something that always stays with me. There's another quote that I just know, which is the concept of from Gus Levy of Goldman Sachs many moons ago of being long-term greedy. So I've always tried to build my life and my career on paying things forward, making sure that I'm doing things that um, with the benefit of time will still be the right decisions. And so the, the other quote, which is basically a corollary to that, but Bill has said it, and I've seen it from Warren Buffett, slightly different, but as Bill told it to us, 10 years to build a reputation, 10 seconds to lose it. And so it all just goes back to making sure that you're deliberate with everything that you do, your interactions with people, making sure that you have some balance because mistakes, even in a moment of time, can come back to haunt you and can really impact your life professionally and personally. Well, it speaks to this long-term orientation of being moral and having, having integrity, even if it comes at the uh, massive expense of immediate gratification and success. And I, I think that's something you and I have talked about a lot. You know, I always find like you can find a lot of insight 
in learning about people when you visit their office. And in your case, and this comes from Bilal, he said, you have a picture hanging in your, on your wall. And he said, ask Peter about it. So I'd love to know what picture is hanging on your wall and what is the meaning behind it? Well, he might be referring to uh, my stock certificates that I have on the wall. Uh, it also could have been Mike Tyson holding a pigeon, which is no longer on the wall given a recent renovation. But let's just assume that it was the Mike Tyson picture, which is probably more distinctive than the old railroad stock certificates that I have. And so I remember when I was just getting started in 2000 or 2001, I visited someone whose offices were on Sand Hill Road, and I had no idea. I was just you know absorbing every piece of information. And so this individual says to me, who was a longtime investor, he's like, you know, this world's all about pigeons and chits. And I said, excuse me, I had my notebook, pigeons and chits. And he said, do you know what a pigeon is? And I said, yeah, I know what a pigeon is. He's like, what does a pigeon do? And I'm like, well, I don't know. It kind of bothers you. It just manders around um, eating. He's like, yes, it eats everything you you throw. And I go, okay. And he's like, you know what a chit is? And I said, not really. He's like, well, it's kind of an exchange of favors. is like everything in this business you can dissect into pigeons and chits. And so basically, and this is something that I shared with our interns for many years uh, with some actually some great PowerPoint slides that I put together. But really at the core, what it describes is understanding venture as a people business, certainly at the earliest stages and people exchanging favors, someone finding a great investment bring in their friend or their colleague or you know their peer to lead the series B and vice versa that really being chits and the pigeon is when your friend doesn't want you know believe in your investment and it's met with cold reception and uh you know it's striking out everywhere that there are often investors that are the quote unquote pigeons that will eat anything you throw oh thank you thank you for bringing this opportunity for me you know, I'm pretty honest and transparent. That's always difficult. And so whenever anyone asks me about a particular portfolio company, if it's struggling, I will tell them, which is probably disadvantageous to that process. But it's not lost on me that there is uh, you know, a whole set of investors who might not be clued in to the the real intel on a particular company, how well they're doing. And unfortunately for them, follows the brand uh, attributes of some of the earlier investors without asking the question, why am I so lucky to be seeing this opportunity? And so if anything, our, our firm has almost because of that insecurity and adequacy we started with, you know, the first question that we would always ask is, <laughs> why are we so lucky to be seeing this tremendous opportunity brought to us by this extremely high signal firm? Now that's changed today, but that you know, saved us many, many times early on in our careers. I love the story and I love the fact that um, the picture had Mike Tyson in it, which is one of the greatest boxers of all time. So I, now this is hearkening back a little bit to, you know, when you guys are fresh faced, 23 year old starting a firm. Now it's 21 years later. A lot of other managers are actually in the same boat that you guys were in 21 years ago, starting a firm. And today there's 4,000 plus active firms and it's a very different market. And a lot of these people are faced with the resistance of why does the world need another venture firm? What advice would you give people that are looking to start a firm in both answering that question and really thinking about the core elements that they need to understand before actually launching a, a long-term endeavor like running a venture firm? Very few people have any appreciation of how appreciation of how difficult it is. I think even in, in a very enthusiastic market 
like today, later stages of a boom, perhaps, people think they go out and put their hand out and it's going to be easy and money will come. And that is just not the truth. Even for some of the most successful investors, the reality is independent of investment skill, you need to be a great storyteller. And so the people that raise capital, especially when it is basically a blank pool, a blind pool, you need to be an amazing storyteller of why someone should come on. And there's many different tactics and techniques you can use. But ultimately, if you don't actually have a portfolio full of investments that someone's looking at evaluating and underwriting, then you need to persuade someone against real reason why they should invest, especially why they should invest early. Because the reality is most institutional investors are experts in hanging around the hoop long enough to be able to kind of make the last decision before the close of a vehicle. And so I have spoken to so many people who've told me they have this soft committed and oh, these people are in and I tell them, watch out, you know, they're telling you that. And then as soon as you put your hand out, we're doing this close, uh, you know, they're in vacation in Tibet for six months, or they're inventing some excuse as to why they can't come back to you. You have to have a story that resonates and whether that's your personal story, whether that's what you're pursuing, it needs to be distinct. It needs to to um, rise above the fray. And that's really hard in a noisy environment like today. Yes, there's more money sloshing around the system, but it's also being absorbed like a sponge from the largest platforms. It's just hard. I know so many LPs, including, I know you had a, a recent uh, podcast with some of them, but it's just so many of them have told me, you know, enough, hands up. I just cannot sort through these thousands of firms coming out of the woodwork. And so it's it's going to be very different. It's not like I have a prescriptive strategy, but you need to find something that's true to you that stands out. And that's often hard because people don't really think about it. And there's this desire to look like something else. Uh, but I think they need to feel comfortable that it needs to resonate. It needs to be you know distinctive. Yeah. And I think you underscore, and I would underscore actually, the uh, the actual difficulty level and the degree of difficulty of actually fundraising. Not only does it require those characteristics, but it requires absolute passion and conviction that you're this is what you want to do because if not you're gonna you're gonna run into those situations where you realize how big the chasm is between the soft commits and the hard commits and you're gonna figure out this is just not something i want to do and so i think it's great advice peter this has been so much fun i appreciate the uh the candor and the transparency and look forward to doing part two with about the capital markets absolutely my pleasure samir thank you for having me Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Peter. To learn more about him or Lux Capital, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes of the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.